Andre Snare Magnuson is an Icelandic writer, public speaker, and documentary director working at the intersection of environmental activism, architecture, visual art, music, theater, and film. His novels, poetry, essays, children's books, and plays have been published and performed in more than 40 countries. He ran in the 2016 Icelandic presidential election for grounding environmental issues in his agenda, and he is also known for writing the text for the memorial plaque of the Auk Glacier in Western Iceland. His 2019 book, On Time and Water, an Icelandic national bestseller shortlisted for the Nordic Council's Literary Prize of 2021, is translated into 30 languages. Andri Snare Magnuson, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I believe you're going to share a reading from On Time and Water. So On Time and Water is a non-fiction book. And this passage is based on when my daughter, her name is Hulta Filipia, and uh, my grandmother, and they carry the same name. They are sitting in the kitchen and they're eating pancakes that his grandmother just made. And grandmother is at the time 94 years old. So this is the conversation. It's in the start of time and water. And this is the section that is more about time. The phone rings and grandma runs to answer it. We sit down to eat pancakes as the radio hums low in the background. I ask my daughter to do a little math puzzle. How old is your great-grandma if she was born in 1924? She's 94. Grandma Hilda replies immediately, fast math, I say. Well, I know how old she is, my daughter says. All right, but now you'll really have to do some sums. When will you be 94? So it would be the year I was born, 2008, plus 94, exactly, I say. She takes a piece of paper and pen and looks skeptically at the sheet. She shows me the result as though it must be a misunderstanding. Is that really right? 2,102? Yes, hopefully you'll be as energetic as Grandma does now. Maybe you'll even be living in this same house. Maybe your 10-year-old great-granddaughter will be visiting, sitting with you in this kitchen in 2102, just like you're sitting here right now. Yes, maybe, says Hilda, sipping a glass of milk. One more equation. When will your great-granddaughter turn 94 years old? Hilda writes some figures on a piece of paper with a little help. So would she have been born in 2022? Yes, that's right. Okay, 2092 plus 24 is 2,186. And looks into the air. Can I go now? She asks. Almost, I say. One more puzzle. How long is it from 1924 to 2186? Filta does the math. Is it 262 years? Imagine that. 262 years. That's the length of time you connect across. You'll know the people who span this time. Your time is the time of the people you know and love, the time that molds you. And your time is also the time of the people you will know and love, the time that you will shape. You can touch 262 years with your bare hands. Your grandma taught you. You will teach your great-granddaughter. You can have a direct impact on the future right up to the year 2186. It really makes us focus the mind because as you point out in this contemporary society, we buy something, we throw it away. We don't think of that long lifespan. I was raised by my grandparents, you know, they remember before First World War, they remember ways of life that is unimaginable. And I'm sure as you discuss also with indigenous cultures, they think of seven generations, including grandparents and children. So it's even more. 
and help us understand how we can refocus our mind on that real deep sense of time. Yeah, I just felt this urgency and how disconnected we are from time and just our most basic continuity. So I'm not even talking about seven generations. I'm just talking about when my own kids are middle-aged. So that's even radical in our culture. To think, uh, how is the world when your kids become middle-aged? So when my kids are 50, around 2050, that's a time that we haven't even planned to be a stable time on Earth. So I thought we had this strange connection to time because culturally, my generation is raised with the year 2000 as an ultimate future, kind of milestone of imagination. And if I ask a group of my peers, do you believe 1970 was 30 years ago? Everybody says yes. And this strange disconnection to the time that we belong to, the time that we're in, it's like we're 20 years over time or 23 years over time. So it feels like it says 2070 or 2100. Culturally, it didn't touch any receivers. It was a void. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to write about climate change, I can't take for granted that people are actually connected to time, uh, to the timeline that I'm writing about. So first I have to lay the fundamentals in the beginning of the book. Okay, we're going to talk about things, but first I'm going to remind you that 2178 is a very intimate date for you. So when you read climate science and read dates like 2080, you don't feel like it's beyond your imagination, beyond 80 years after 2000. But it's like only halfway in your most intimate continuity of the people that you love the most. And then we're not even talking about people that are beyond the reach. Indeed, we live at this strange moment in terms of modern medicine is extended longevity. And there's some futurologists and they want to live forever. And so conceivably, we'll get rid of all these diseases, increase longevity, and yet our planet is becoming increasingly unstable. So the contradiction there. Your book is also nonfiction. These are people you've known. They're also people that you've interviewed and great figures like the Dalai Lama. You speak intimately about the lifespan or the death, the loss of a glacier. So it is nonfiction, and yet there's a great poetic sensibility that helps connect us on this elemental mythological level to care. Yes, so because we're talking about the creative process, and I was probably 10 years struggling to get this book together. And I knew I could speak the arts because I was meeting lots of students, and I could talk for an hour and keep people semi-awake. By mixing these family stories, I felt like what is it to write about an issue? So I was always confronted with the issue is larger than language. That is, so much of the language is meaningless. And I felt like... Just the facts also are very dry and straightforward. So I think I could make GDP write a kind of a linear climate book in 55 seconds, explaining some of the causes and effects of climate change and even solutions. I think I could do that. But the elements that I thought I could bring to the table were these kind of questions about language, questions about mythology, because when you reach a scale, when you're living, when you are witnessing the death of a glacier, you are living a mythological moment in history. That is, when a glacier is going from being, it's not only a political moment, it's a geological shift that you are, and nobody knows where that is leading us. So I felt like just to explain the urgency, to use the tool of literature that has always been, which is 
poetry, but also mythology. Like when these leaders were meeting in Egypt last year, discussing sea level, when was the last time in history a leader of a group of people could influence sea level? You have to go down to Moses to find the comparison of people moving the oceans or a person. And Moses was only moving small passage through the Red Sea, 16 kilometers wide. But these people among us were discussing a possible raise of sea level globally of one meter, three feet. And that is nothing that anybody has spoken about in politics before. But we have already become numb to that fact. That is, we already take it for granted that they will meet next year and we mock them for arriving in private jets and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're mocking them, but we don't hold our breath while they're meeting. It's not like it's the World Cup or the Super Bowl, which it should be. But we should be holding our breath and we should be like, oh my God, China is not <laughs> coming to the table. Oh no, America is dysfunctional. We should be on our toes watching this almost like life and death was at stake, which it is, but we don't treat it like that. So... This alienation that can come with poetry and to remind people to just take three steps backwards and look at this in a 5,000 year perspective, you know, when did the world leaders meet to discuss the sea level? Never. <laughs> Indeed. And then there's some kinds of geoengineering that may be interesting, but they, they feel like, oh, we can continue this path of greed and consumption. We don't have to pay any price because we can geoengineer our way out of it, which is again, you know, mastering the sun, mastering the climate. But I'm very open to those new technologies. But of course, we have to scale back. We don't control. This is just like with we saw with COVID, the great humbling that we are not entirely masters of our domain. I love the metaphors that you use because I had never heard it or read it expressed in that way in these mythological terms that we've made this kind of pact with the underworld, like extracting all of the fossil fuels and so that we could be gods, momentarily gods. And now like Icarus, we're brought back to earth. There are lots of fairy tales about this. You know, you make a pact with the devil and he says, I can help you. Just give me your firstborn. And they're like, oh, I'm not having a baby yet. So you know, why not say yes? So still skin or what these stories are called. And then eventually uh, there's a knock on the door, somebody claiming your offspring. And that's exactly what's happening. We've got a temporary solution to everything and superpowers. But now somebody is claiming that there was a price. It is like warnings. And I don't know how many times, but this, of course, seems more critical because of the acceleration. Yes, I think still when people ask, What's the solution to climate change? Is it technological? Is it social? Is it religious, spiritual? Is it political? You know, where's the solution? And I'll just say yes. When we're talking about the future of everything, the foundations of our planet and everything, the answer is basically yes. It's every single sector of our lives. Like, yes, there is a solution. You know, in a way, we are addicted to the superpowers that energy gives us and the effect of Switching off all the power could be as bad as the worst effects of climate change. That is, to get a social chaos and some kind of a crumbling of our order and institutions. Like America has about 1 billion devices that run by oil or coal or gas, and they need to be electrified. And the electricity that these devices get needs to be solar, wind, or some kind of alternative thermal power. And so, yes. Part of the solution is technology and changing from one technology to another. But then you have to ask, you know, what is the paradigm of that technology? Is the traffic jam in an electric car better than a traffic jam oil-driven car? And then it comes down to, is it possible to take a society that was based on waste and consumption? And is it in some kind of illusion that 
those habits will be seamlessly translated into clean energy or clean tech or whatever, and everything will be fine. And Or also because you spoke about COVID, there's this illusion also that the transition will be some kind of seamless upgrades of our system, that we won't let go of everything. So as people, for example, uh, okay, which is bigger, COVID or climate change? They say, of course, climate change, because even COVID wants us to save the climate because they rely on us. <laughs> And in the end, we all rely on the planet. So I asked them, well, name 10 things, how COVID changed your life. And basically over one weekend, people can name a hundred things, you know, didn't go to school, didn't go to work, didn't attend funerals, masks, social distancing, just all of these terrible things that we had to go through, but in a humble spirit for the most part. And still we're relatively sane after two difficult years of that. Then you ask somebody, okay, name me if climate change is bigger, name the 10 greatest things that are annoying you of how you are addressing climate change, how you have been forced to do that by the government or, or the international community in a similar way that we were forced to deal with Corona. And people are like, yeah, that's a very good question. And I say, Voltage versus just the top 10 things, how your life changed from IPCC report number three to number five. Thinking and thinking. And then people think and think and think, and it's like, well, Moyo, girl, he just bought a Tesla. Okay. <laughs> so that's the ultimate sacrifice you can find in your surroundings that your poor uncle was forced to buy a Tesla. And that's, I think it symbolizes very well that we haven't started addressing this. We're still in the old system. We're still in the pre-knowledge of climate. There are some tweaks being done and there are some things being done, but in the big picture, we have not been mobilized. We have not been called to action or called to responsibility. And that's why when I'm writing that chapter that I read, the responsibility is just against our own children. We haven't even, we're so entitled. Yes, we haven't really started that. We know it's urgent and in fact, an emergency. You've seen, you've had the chance within Iceland to go back to your family, your grandparents. You've seen the documentation that they did as explorers of glaciers documenting that and that maybe it's seen more dramatically. I think we all accustom ourselves so quickly, so we forget. But I think that with the vanishing glaciers, that's a kind of dramatic in a visual, I can see that. And others feel, I, I think, that they put blinkers on. But just to go to some of the pillars of your book, which is, of course, on water and time, and also language and landscape, and how you reflected on these elements and to bring them together to what is really quite difficult to talk about the big story of climate change. Yes. So when I was writing the book, somebody said, well, this is not one book. This is about your grandmother. But Glaciers. So you have to focus, you have to focus, you have to have this mythology and glacial science and ocean science and speculations about words like ocean acidification and your grandfather's sister that is visiting Tolstoy can't put all this into a book. And then I thought, oh yes, of course, my favorite uncle, that was the research of crocodiles. I have to put him into the book. <laughs> and when I put the crocodiles into the book, it was like a keystone. Everything fell together into a whole picture. And in some ways, of course, it's strange that, you know, we live in democratic societies and literatures and art of, you could say, entertainment. People want to continue reading books and space them ancient ways of storytelling, of suspension and arts. And I trust, of course, it's strange to live in a society where we have to entertain ourselves 
to understand the most important issue in the world. It's almost like the ambulance needed to have techno music, so we would take notice of it. But we are fighting to get attention from a gazillion other things. And it's kind of a strange place as an author, if you distance yourself as a writer, if you believe that we're in democracies, that there's a connection on earth between words and places, or literature and places. So we are competing, throwing out words into our societies, hoping that society will catch these words and change the law, which is also words. And these words and the law will eventually prevent us from damaging the glaciers. So it's almost like living in some kind of a magic era when the sorcerer could make a spell and the world would change by the spell. So concentrated, we are trying to be these sorcerers, trying to find the magic spell that will stop the glacier from melting. Indeed, I do think that language has that soft power of eroding hard thoughts, seeping into our minds and imaginations and dreams. And so speaking of glaciers, you did create a declaration when the loss of the Oak Glacier. Just tell us a little bit about that and why that was important for you. So professors from Rice University, Dominic Boyer and Simone Howe, they're anthropologists doing research on climate change, and they noticed that Iceland had lost its first glacier to climate change. And just like we have monuments to major events like war monuments and anti-slavery monuments and human civilizations of monuments in history, and they were thinking the first glacier to be gone, doesn't that deserve a monument? So they planned this event where we would place a monument in memory of the first glacier Iceland loses to climate change. And asked me to write the text for that plaque. And uh, it was a strange request because for the person to be a writer, to be living during a time when a glacier has gone during your lifetime. And uh, what kind of an obituary to write or what kind of message to write? Because I was thinking, okay, I'm writing this in copper. So I'm writing to the people around me here and now, but just like in a graveyard, somebody might come after 200, 300, 500, 600 years and read these words. So I'm simultaneously addressing my peers, my fellow earthlings here and now, and then talking to people that might stumble upon that glacier in the near or distant future. So I wrote, this monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done, but only you know who did it. And then I put August 2019, 415 ppm of CO2. And that monument, that act or happening became quite viral. So those are the words of mine that have been spread the most in the world and the whole world knows. So uh, to create some kind of words around that a whole summer of attempts. And we hope it's not this cycle. If you lose those other 200 or so glaciers, then does Iceland become a place of no name or, yeah. or it loses its meaning? That's the other question there because ice covers about 10% of Iceland and then the glacial rivers are basically shaping the landscape and the waterfalls all around Iceland and the black sands and seeding the cod because the spring flows of glacial mist actually is good for the fish in the ocean. It brings nutrients. So what is Iceland without this? Just land. And so losing more than just glaciers, losing some kind of identity or place. And then in the big picture, I'm not most worried about the Icelandic glaciers because the real tragedy is if 
the Himalayan glaciers go the same way. And we have it also in the Andes and in many places in the world where glaciers are very important for agriculture and the basic water supply of people. So that's where I go into mythology in the book, because in Nordic mythology, the world started with a cow, a frozen cow made of frost and snow. And it never made sense to me. But if you look at the Himalayas, how these frozen glaciers are feeding one billion people with milky white water that is better than normal water, then it makes total sense. Of course, the frozen cow, it's a glacier. It's beautiful how the, all these mythologies or religious or spiritual stories nourish our imaginations in that way and really pay tribute it to honor the power of nature, you know, to embody it and to place oneself in a humble position in relation to it. And we've forgotten that when we think we're gods, that we're kind of out of balance. Would you like to share another one of your poems and discuss also your children's writing, which is also wonderful. You reach all levels in different mediums. Yes, I can read a poem, please. So I have written poetry, plays, short stories, science fiction, non-fiction, children's books, and directed documentary films. So I jokingly said that my goal was to betray my audience. So this is one of my first books. If people have been to Iceland, they will recognize the logo, so the bonus logo. So this is the biggest supermarket chain in Iceland. It makes bonus bread, bonus ham, bonus cola, bonus juice, bonus toilet paper, bonus everything. And I thought, how would the poetry look like if mass-produced poetry within the same category, the juice and the ham and the bread, everything with this pig on it. And I designed the cover so it looked like this, bonus poetry. And then I was thinking like, wow, this is kind of our main place. This is where everybody goes. And this is like a fundamental of our existence. But nobody's writing about this place. So it's, and I was looking around and I saw that bonus was divided exactly like the divine comet by Dante. So he's starting the truth division, the paradiso, then you go to inferno, the meat products, and then you end in the purgatory, the cleaning products. And, uh, and I thought this was very tempting. So when I found this train, I started making these poems to entertain my friends initially, these bonus poems. And they didn't have names unless they were sponsored by multinational corporations, which of course they were not. My grandfather was 70% water. He was 70% the stream that trickled past his farm. He was 30% the sheep that grazed on his mountain. He was a fish swimming in his lake. He was a cow in his field. He was a stream, he was the grass, the mountain, and the lake. I am not 70% water, perhaps 15% mineral water. The rest is beer and Coca-Cola. I'm Italian pasta, Swiss cheese, Danish pork, and Chinese rice. American ketchup runs through my veins. You are what you eat. I'm a miniature of the world. No, I'm a miniature of bones. And this poem is scientifically proven because our body changes every element every five years. So after five years, everything you are has become different material. So if you shop in bonus for five years, then everything you are, every tangible ounce of your body came from bonus and home in a yellow plastic bag, which is beautiful. So it was like this staggering difference between where my source of protein and calories comes versus my grandfather's, where he caught and raised everything that he ate. So the book was sold by the culture on an eternal special offer and bonus and became a bestseller because it was published by the supermarket. But in a strange way, I was making fun of bonus, but at the same time, it became a bestseller. So I was invited for a TV interview. This was in the 90s, before the internet actually, or proper internet. Half the nation was watching one channel and half of the nation was watching the other. 
I was expecting a child and I started to really think like, why do I write or why do I want to write? You know, I was 23 years old. Why do I want to write? Where do I put my talent? Am I just entertaining? Am I bringing everything vital to the table? You write for multiple genres, multiple generations. It's so important not just stay in the silo, but to reach all. And of course, your writing for children, which can be enjoyed by adults, also has this great sense of humor. And it just making us think about the way we're behaving. It's, we can't increase our fun 100%. It has consequences. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of some of your children's books. I think my output is also just a product of my input. And I think why I started writing, of course, is I was thinking on my deathbed, if I would think of the 10 books that influenced me most when I'm 95 years old, I would probably name five children's books and then two books of poetry or three or and two novels and maybe the Bible or something like that. So I always thought if you can make any contribution to literature, that is like a heavyweight contribution that can be done in a strong children's book. So I was really thinking about mythology and I didn't like any of the ideas that I had. And I was working in the archives of the University Institute, the manuscript in Magnuson Institute in Iceland. And I was thinking of fairy tales and culture and how there was no difference between children's culture and grown-up culture. It was just mythology or folklore. And it wasn't like one type of story was for grown-ups and one for children, but we all shared some kind of a pool of stories. And I was thinking about mythology because I was putting on display this primal source of Nordic mythology and how mythology teaches us all sorts of things. It brings us all sorts of metaphors that we can still refer to, you know, Pandora's box or the Democles' word or, or just all these metaphors that, that mythology tells us about love and Prometheus and, and the world tree and, you know, all these things and order. And then I was thinking, but all the mythology was created before we knew we were about living on a planet. There's no mythology about how difficult it is to live on a planet where every single person has such a short horizon, but you never see the whole planet. There's no metaphors or mythology that explains how one action on this side of the planet might completely devastate the opposite side of the planet. So I uh, created this planet, which is a bit similar to our own, but I only had children living on the planet. And they're completely free and they're wild and they can do whatever they want. But one day this space monster arrives and his name is Jolly Gridley. And he's the coolest guy in the world and he can do everything. He's like a trickster and he offers them happiness and he teaches them how to fly by sweeping the dust off the butterfly's wings so they can fly while the sun shines. But then the kids ask him, we also want to fly to him. And he says, I can solve this. So he takes a big hammer and a nail and he fixes the sun in the sky. So it will always shine on the children. But then two children are blown by the wind and they land on the other side of the planet. And they have to find their way home and they go through some very dark, dangerous adventures. And I was ambitious when I wrote this book. I wanted also to appeal to grown-ups because I felt like it was such a shame that often when I was reading for my child or for children, that I was kind of bored myself. I felt like the author had not been putting all the efforts. I really wanted to be something that the child would like, but the parent would finish after the child falls asleep. But also a book the child would come back to 10, 20 years later, and find layers in the story that it did not see when it was a child. So this was very ambitious, of course, of the 23, 4, 5-year-old of me when I started to write this as my first novel or book. I was big on mythology when I was a kid. My family's bookshelves were stocked full of compendiums of Greek, Egyptian, Tibetan, Norse, Mayan mythologies and folktales, and much more. I would imagine myself into these mythologies 
as a soul in transit to the afterworld or a vengeful minor goddess riding a portmanteau of an animal, or some capricious primeval spirit incarnated in a pebble. As I reflect back on all these myths I read, I think they all reach towards this great connectedness of the universe via a world tree or a great mountain between sky and earth, or the creation of mankind from some abundant natural material like corn or clay. And these world systems are often, of course, based in a culture's conception of themselves as center of the mythological universe, but they nonetheless gesture towards a universal unity and the interchangeability of the materials that make up everything. But as Mr. Magnuson points out, these rich mythologies were all created before we knew we were living on a planet, and the universality of those myths is not equivalent to a mythology which encompasses what it's like to live on a planet today. So I think it's wonderful the way Mr. Magnuson speaks of envisioning and himself envisions a planetary mythology, which must be grounded in the very quickly changing relationship between modern global institutions, the global economy, and the unique relationship they have with each other and the environment today. But I wonder if there is still a place for that transcendent sense or intuition of universal oneness that we find in myths. For example, I found what Mr. Magnuson said about the bonus poems quite striking. That since everything in our bodies is continuously replaced by what we intake, gradually all your body would have come from bonus groceries. And when I think about the indefinite regression of this process, with the animals and humans involved in the production of groceries also constantly being reconstituted by the food that came to them from other humans and animals, it feels like the world returns to this ancient cyclicality of all things, perpetually remaking themselves into other things. I feel that the notion of oneness also questions whether it's possible to see an endangered natural world not solely as something we must extend compassion towards, but something we must protect for its own sake. There often seems to be this tendency to first anthropomorphize the natural world or fit it into an anthropocentric morality in order to justify protecting it, which designates humans as a natural, morally bound protector of what are only minor and subjugated pieces that service a human-oriented and human-ruled world. But is it possible to see the natural world not as other to humans somehow? Is it possible to protect the natural world for its own sake without first casting it in an anthropomorphic light? These are difficult questions to answer, but ones which the works of individuals like Mr. Magnuson are starting important, even if uncomfortable, conversations around. And now, back to the interview. I explained it almost in a Hebrew way to my family, because I said I was writing a classical children's book that would be reprinted for 200 years. And that sounds very arrogant of a young man, but at the same time, it's arrogant if you just say it, but that of course comes with lots of pain of thinking, writing, seeking criticism and meeting that criticism with months and maybe years of work. So uh, the creative process in that book, I could retell it as an oral story. I was asked to have a performance in the city, in the National Theatre of Iceland, a reading, but all my books were like three years old and I didn't have anything that I wanted to say. And I didn't feel like performing something that was three years old. So I went on stage unprepared and I decided to retell the story before I wrote anything. So I told the story like a fairy tale. And then I went home and I started writing. And I was also jinxing this idea that you can't tell a story because you will ruin it. But I actually told the whole story before I went home to write. Yeah, I actually think that's a wonderful thing because when you tell something, writing for the page is so powerful. It is kind of for the ears, but it's for the eyes. But when you perform or you tell to an audience or just to someone, you keep the essential. That is the kernel. That's what's important. And it's like what we have in theater, the drama, that this is what can't be forgotten. The other, you can kind of 
you can fill in the blanks. So I think it's really important for any kind of writer or storyteller that that's the thing stays with you in memory. That's the living part. The other is the kind of setup. But really, this is what's the gripping part. And so it's a great lesson, I think, because then you would have that as a touchstone tuning fork in your mind. And you could hear the laughs or the responses. And I think also it helps you to etch the idea because you get a, some feedback and people ask why. And, you know, and so quite a lot of my stories, the Blue Planet and also Time and Water, started as oral arches that I could tell. And I knew kind of by a hunch that if I could tell them orally as a story, I knew that the book was there. And I just had to go to the of writing that book. I think writing is very hard. Sometimes things flow and it's fun, but most of the time it's a very difficult process of work, thoughts, like obstacles, self-criticizing. When I finish a book, it can take me two years, up to 10 years to finish a book. And when I finish a book, I don't feel like I'm an author anymore. Because I don't know if I will be able to write the next book. And I always envy these authors that it seems like almost effortlessly they say, yeah, it takes like nine months to write a book. And I'm always drained for a year then after the book. Both because I'm kind of creatively satisfied. I just feel like it's rude. You know, what do you think I have a machine or something? But also very often, like for time and water, you also take a torch. You're also carrying a cause. And it's also some sort of activism. So following up on that book has been a very long process. Sometimes it's like the work just starts when the book is out. So now I'm like, I have three ideas for books. And I question, uh, can I call myself a writer? Because I can't just sit down and decide to write the book. But still I have 12 books, but they just don't come so easily. Indeed, it's this act of translation. And it's really important to have that, not you know crippling doubt, but this sense of, I'm only going to do this if it's important. And bringing it out, excavating it and bringing it into the world, this archaeology of the imagination is, yeah, it's something difficult. I think that with the evolution of the written word, it came later. So we had music, we had oral storytelling, we had even dance and all these things. And then the formal logic of grammar and putting it on paper was that later stage of development. Like if you think of James Joyce or whatever, complicated books, but they have this very strong oral element as to the great epic poetry. You spoke earlier at the beginning of the discussion about the sacrifices. You asked people, what had they done knowing that we're in the middle of a climate crisis? What had they given up? And so what for you, obviously family, it runs through all your books. Obviously family is very important to you and this long, deep sense of time and history and what one leaves behind is important. So what are those things that you'd be okay with sacrificing or curbing or doing without in order to pass on a planet to your children so that they can thrive and play? I think we collectively can cut down quite a lot. And I think it's better if we do it collectively. And only possible, I think, if we do it really collectively. I actually think that we need some kind of a war effort where we just remove certain things and mobilize people to install other things. So I think when I talk to young people, it's not about what we can't do anymore. It's overwhelming what we need to do in terms of changing industries. I tell them like you go into fashion, the fashion business, it has to be reinvented almost totally if you go into Energy, we have to transform almost the whole energy sector. If you go into food, we have to change the food systems, the farming. If you go into culture and politics, it's very much about what happens during this transition. And if you go into engineering, we have to reinvent or invent 
rough circular economy. Then the question is, if you take too much away, you have scarcity and, and suffering. But there's also suffering in the abundance that we can feel in our contemporary societies. Anxiety among teenagers and overconsumption and screen time and all that stuff. So it seems like when I'm writing my book on time and water, it seems like there's some kind of peak there in the life of my grandmother and my grandmother's people born around 1920. So it's somewhere around 1940 when there's enough to eat and kind of enough to do so people have kind of self-worth through their contribution to society, but still enough three times so they're inventing sports, they're creating a glacial research society. So they have time to do things on a, like a higher level and they go with their friends and build mountain cabins where they can spend weekends and Easter skiing in the mountains. Still not in any luxury cabins, they're like crammed up like 60 together in, in 150 square meters of a mountain cabin. But there's some kind of peak happiness there. That is, you need some energy, some input, some security, some housing, and at some point you have could say enough and you can make lots of dreams come true and do things and entertain yourself and you're not just toiling 18 hours a day for your sheer survival but then you cope on that and don't essentially have that just going to traffic jams and, and stress like i was talking about before so i think corona was very painful because it took away our intimacy our connections to our neighbors to our communities to each other so I think that addressing the climate crisis is about taking other things or, or changing other habits, but it's not taking away the theater, the dance, the coming together to eat, the concerts, the culture. So I think we can take away quite a lot of wasteful energy burning, and we can divert quite a lot of talent into fixing the grid, into being clean, etc. But I think we can go quite far without losing as much as we lost during Corona. That is, while we can still hug grandmothers and still go to schools and we can still entertain each other, but for a, for a while, we might have to skip something. And we just have to Google what we might have to skip. But in hindsight, if we do that for a few years, while we are going through the transition, it will not be the most painful five years that we went through. So I think some kind of a war effort of mobilizing people towards the cause and the reduction of CO2, I think it would be a fulfilling thing. Indeed, I think it did help us understand the things that we value, that social connection or the arts or the things that touch and move us. And unfortunately, with our current systems, we had to find a way to put price tags on things to make us want things that we don't need so that now the things that we've manufactured now outweigh organic matter living creatures on this planet, which doesn't make sense. That's so out of balance. And so just in closing, because I know that also there is this deep spiritual element, this mythological element, the spiritual element. You've collaborated with many artistic visionaries and you've spoken to great spiritual leaders as well on the political level. So just tell us a little bit about those conversations or collaborations and how that makes you hopeful. Yes. So the book is based on science, you know, like the foundation of what is happening to the world is based on science. It's not based on superstition or religion or some kind of spiritual feeling that I have. So it's based on science. But then within that paradigm, you think, should there not be spirituality? So I'm reading books from the 50s, well, from the 40s and 30s, where a person goes into the Icelandic highlands and he really explodes into some kind of a spiritual state in the highlands of Iceland. And I was thinking, when did we stop having permission or declaring things to be holy? 
for example. Every civilization, every generation has seen something holy. So has said, this is larger than me. And I could not say a place was holy because there is just some kind of a spirit of place. Then kind of treating spirituality or holiness or something else, just asking this question, what regime are we living in where the planet is being derailed by a billion rational decisions, rational engineering, rational design, rational governments and rational law. We are derailing the planet. And in hindsight, every other place had been holy. We would not be faced with this problem because in some ancient civilizations, they said, don't go into that forest because something terrible will happen. But then they just went in there with the engineer and he said, I don't see anything. So they cut down the forest and guess what? Something terrible is happening. So I'm blessed with meeting writers that influenced me also in the book invited to interview the Dalai Lama twice. And I was thinking, what do you ask a person that has reincarnated 14 times? So it has to be a super intelligent question. And just these thoughts of alternative ways of living and looking at the world. I interview a Hindu guru, but I also interview lots of scientists. And sometimes the gurus are actually more rational than the scientists. <laughs> and I just talk about climate solutions. And then I seek wisdom from my grandparents and not only wisdom, just simple friendship and stories. And I could ask like my grandparents that both became 98 years old or two of them are 100 years, a long time or a short time. And they would tell me it's a very short time. Uh, and then it was this climate scientist in Pötzka, his name is Wolfgang Luck, one of the main climate scientists or earth model scientists or systems scientists, one of the people behind these systems that help us understand what is happening with the climate. And he encouraged me to write and he said, people don't understand that, they understand stories. And so I would say that kind of the encouragement that I take on the task and write about ocean acidification. It's a very strong belief that the artist does have a role in our society. Sometimes he's an entertainer, sometimes he's just documenting, but sometimes you maybe have a role in a very fundamental shift in our history, in the transition of, from one paradigm to another. And I think that's where we are now. And I felt like I could not be a writer here and now in history and not doing some effort in addressing this issue. Well, they converge beautifully in your writing. And in my way of thinking, the spirituality and the science and the arts, they're interconnected, as we see so beautifully in your writing, whether, as you say, you speak to scientists or you speak to spiritual leaders, you know, they seem to be telling the same story that we come from the land and we return to it. We're made of water. It's all interconnected and they will tell you the same thing, but just through different lenses. And different ways of language. So thank you, Andrew Snare Magnuson, for helping us connect to the future in an intimate and urgent way, for helping us consider deep time and come to terms with the Anthropocene and our impact on Earth so we can develop a counter vision and work collectively for a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much. Really nice meeting you. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Henny Zhang. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. 
Thank you for listening.